Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you young kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. When Kevin and I first started this show in 2016, we made a dream list of guests, and the brilliant artist we are speaking to today was on the top of that list. We have tried for many years to get her. She's with us today. If you love musical theater, then you are uh, just in love with her talents as we are. Her voice is otherworldly, yes, but her ability to tell a story transcends any theatrical experience. And there have been so many theatrical experiences like The Wiz, Arnhem, Dreamgirls, Cats, Romance and Hard Times, Once on This Island, the 1995 Had a Succeed revival, The Life, for which she won the Tony Award, Thela, and the actress fun performances of Funny Girl. Plus, she has become one of the most prominent cabaret artists working today. And of course, Hercules, which I'm sure we'll talk about, to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Cy Coleman, Alan Menken, Joe Layton, Graziella Danielle, Michael Blakemore, and William Finn, as well to discuss her incredible new solo album, which we got a sneak peek listen to, and it is fantastic. The album is called Get Yourself Some Happy, and it's going to drop July 23rd. Here is the Tony and Emmy Award-winning member of the second oldest profession, Miss Lilius White. Miss White, how are you today? I'm wonderful. I'm feeling blessed and favored and just great. Well, we're we are so feeling lucky to have you. We are, we are so feeling the exact same way because we have you. All right. So, Miss White, before we talk about this amazing album that you've created, we're going to talk a little bit about your past. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. What part of Brooklyn? Crown Heights. I'm from uh-huh. Crown Heights. When it was the Heights. Was your family artistic? Were they, were they musical like you were? I have relatives going back who would sing. 
my mother told me that we have a, she had an aunt in the family who used to sing. She would sing and, and I met her once and she told me, baby, don't sing outdoors and don't sing in the rain. <laughs> okay. And I never forgot that. And I've tried very hard to adhere to that because when I do sing outdoors, it's not good for me. So, um, and it's not just in my head. It's physically not good for me. Yeah. So anyway, so that's where I'm from. I love that. I'm, I'm from some people who knew some stuff without reading it in a book. I love exactly. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Now, what did what did your parents do for work? What were what were they involved in? Uh, well, my mother was a uh, caregiver to children. Oh, so wonderful. My mother wow. would babysit a lot of kids, and then of course during the summer. That would also be my job. Yes. <laughs> and I, you know, I liked it for the most part. Uh, my father worked for Se- Chevrolet for several years. He painted cars for Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when he finished doing that, he was um, a dietitian for the New York City Department of Education. Oh, wow. Were you outgoing as a kid? Were you pretty outgoing and, like, social and all that? I would have to say I was. You know, I was a, I was a caretaker. I wanted to take care of people and you know I wanted to hang out I played handball I went swimming I I um I like to dance and and go to concerts my mother used to take us to Radio City Music Hall Mm. twice a year for the Easter show and the Christmas show so um my brothers and I went to that regularly and so I I was always involved in the arts I have uh an aunt and uncle they were uh my aunt was a uh an artist she did wood cuttings Oh wow! And some paintings, and my uncle was a, a, an artist. He would paint. He's, he did murals. He's got murals up in big churches in Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. he did portraits. And uh, so, yeah, so I had artists in my family. I had one aunt who was she wasn't a great piano player, but she was playing. She played piano, and I have a cousin who uh, is an educator who's getting ready to retire. She's retired oh, now. My. And my aunt Lilius was a dancer with the June Taylor Dance Company on, that was on Jackie Gleason's show. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh, really? That's fancy. Yeah, my Aunt Lily's. Yeah, that's fancy. So, and then back in those days when you got married, you quit show business. Ah, Didn't do show right. business anymore. Like so after nice. she got married, she didn't do that anymore, but she encouraged me. And she would dress me up, and my grandmother would have big dinners and put me on the dining room table after dessert. And so I, that was my first stage was for, for my family. Yeah. And it was just something that I liked to do. Uh, it was not something that I ever thought of as something I would do for the rest of my life. What did you think you were going to do for the rest of your life? Well, I wanted to be a ballerina. Mm. That was it. Yeah. Mm. I, I wanted to be in toe shoes and do that. But there were no places for me back then. There were no places for Black girls who wanted to learn ballet. And so, uh, and my mother really couldn't afford it. So, um, I, so I, I got my kicks at Radio City Music Hall and looking at ballet. Uh, so I, went, I grew up in New York City. And I, at the time that I was growing up, there were lots of arts and arts right. education programs. And uh, the schools, the New York City public schools, used to take us on trips. We went to, we went to, the, to the theater. We went to the ballet. 
We went to Albanelli. We went to Nikolai Dance Company. We went to the museums. We mm. went to the planetarium. You know, these were school trips that were regular occurrences in the New York City's public schools at that time. So I, I was exposed to a lot of culture and art. And my mother would buy me show tune albums. And I can tell you, I sang every word of How to Get Your Gun, oh. all the parts. Good, good. And uh, all the parts in West Side Story, all the parts to My Fair Lady, all of that mm. stuff. Oh, that was nice. my, so I would do that in my living room, and then my mother would b- let me buy 45s. Oh, I love it. And so I had the Marvelettes and Marvin Gaye and the Temptations and the Supremes and, you know, Gladys Knight all in my living room day and night. And <laughs> I, I had an aunt who made wigs, so she'd give me some of her throwaway wigs, and I'd do the wigs and, you know, be in my yeah. living room. With my spoon or my hairbrush in the yes. mirror. Ooh, baby love, my baby love, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Oh, my God. Were you yeah. taking voice lessons? Or was this just a natural gift that just came this out was, of you? This was all natural. I had my first voice lesson, I want to say, when I was maybe 14 or 15. Okay. And um, and the teacher said, "You're really your your voice is is going to still be developing, and so you don't really need anything. You just have to make sure you're breathing." And so, yeah. So I just I took a deep breath and I I went for it. I did, however, get when I got to college, I did start to study seriously um, with a woman named Dorothy Jinro. I was at a theater company called the Demigods. Oh. And um, our credo was every singer is a dancer is an actor. Every actor is a singer is a dancer. So we mm-hmm. were taught to be proficient in all three areas. And we built sets and we made costumes. We did a lot of stuff. Wow. But Dorothy Jenma was the co-founder of the Demigods, along with her husband, Joseph A. Walker, who was the Tony Award-winning playwright for a play called The River Niger. Yeah. Where was college for you? I went to the City University of New York, City College okay. up here. Yes. Up on the hill here. Yes. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I got an honorary doctorate degree from there. <sighs> yes. Dr. White, congratulations. Dr. White. Dr. White, okay. Dr. White. So when did you decide that you were seriously going to pursue this as a career, when this, this is now a job? Well, I, I have to say that it kind of, pursued me perfect um i i was gonna be a recording artist and Mm. you know make records and the theater kind of got me while i was in the demigods and we did so many performances and i was told so much about how how much of an artist i am and this was you Mm. know meant for me to be doing this and you know so i i stayed with it and I enjoyed it, but I wasn't good at it when I started. I was always good at singing, but singing and dancing, there was the singing was always incidental to me. Because it, it came so easily or because it just like came out of you and you didn't have to work at it? I guess it was some of that and some of it was just natural. It's what I could do. But I wanted to dance. I really loved dancing and I I pushed real hard on that. The acting I was terrible at. Really? I was terrible when I started. <laughs> so how did how did you learn 
to be well, the great actress you are now? I learned because I was in a theater company with Joseph A. Walker and his wife, and and uh, the demigods would often have master classes by people like Francis Foster oh. and Douglas Stern Award, mm. and so we we were able to you know to to learn from them. So tell us a little bit more about the demigods. Were they associated specifically with City College, or was it an independent group, and you you were just doing it while you were going to college? Well, we did have some people who were not in college, but most of the people in the Dairy Gods at that time were in the city college or the city university system. Got mm-hmm. it, got it, okay. So they were either at Hunter College or one of the junior colleges or, you know, something like that. And then we did have some people who were not in school at all, who were who were not young. They were grown people, mm-hmm. and they, they were just interested in the theater, and they were um, they were interested in, in, in helping out in every way and every way that they could to make sure the productions got mounted. Right, right. Um, so um, it was an eclectic group. It was... Um, I think we might have had one or two white people at some point. I think. I think we did have one white guy. But um, for the most part, it was, you know, it was black people. Yeah. Uh, learning about theater, learning about black theater. And Joseph Walker was a taskmaster. He, he was a tough cookie. Mm. So, you know, you either learned or you got out. Mm. And um, he didn't make you feel welcome if you weren't good at it. Great. Now, what's oh. a lesson that you learned from him that you still take with you today while you're working? To trust my gut. Mm. Ah, okay. I think one of the most important things that I came away from it with was to trust my first instinct. Because he, he always said that your first instinct is, is 100% right. Or it's 99.9% right. Mm. He would say that. So... I've learned to do that as an actor, and you know, it, it really has helped me a lot. And as a as a singer, as you know, as someone that when you're putting a cabaret show together, you I, I make a long list of songs, right? And I try to figure out how they are related to one another, and how they connect to me. So when you get a role, when you when you when you choose to take on a role. How do you begin your process of creating that character? Do you, do you sit down and, you know, write out, oh, this is my objective in this thing? Do you like to just be in the rehearsal room trying out your gut instinct? Where do you begin? I begin by making a, a biography of the character. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I make a story about the character. I write about where she was born, who she is, who her parents were, how she grew up, um, what her colors are, Mm. um, what she likes to eat, what she likes to wear, what her attitude is about this or that. So I make a full biography Mm. of the character so that I know who she is inside and out. (laughs) And sometimes uh, she's very much like me and... Sometimes she's not at all like me. You said earlier that, you know, you didn't really pursue this career. This career pursued you because you were going to be a recording artist and a dancer. When, when did musical theater start to come into your life? We used to do uh, sophomore, junior, senior, sing, S-I-N-G. They do a scaled-down version of a current musical, and they put different lyrics to it. I would get involved in those things. I was probably one of the only Black 
kids involved because the black kids didn't go up for that too, that too much. Mm. But I've been, I, I grew up listening to musical theater. Right, exactly. I grew up watching the Tonys. I grew up watching Ed Sullivan and, mm. and seeing all this. And the, there was, used to be a show called Soul on Channel 13 or PBS. So I grew up, you know, being interested in musical theater. So when I got to college, I was in a, my first year and I was in a speech class. And that's when I met Joseph Walker. Mm. We, didn't hit, we didn't hit it off very well because he was fresh. And I was, my, my back was to the classroom one day, the first day of class. Mm -hmm. I'm looking out the window and, you know, I had on a very fashionable little knit suit. And the skirt mm -hmm. was short. But, you know, I was a size six baby. And I was so <laughs> beautiful. Okay. Yes. Okay. And so he touched my leg. I whipped around. Yeah, you did. And he was grinning like it was cute. And I gave him what for, honey. I didn't know who he was. I didn't give a shit. I didn't want somebody touching me. And my mother told me, don't let nobody touch you. And then I found out a few minutes later that he was the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, even oh, like, oh my Okay. Then I had another class in the same semester, singing class. You know, we're looking at the music, and I, I, I wasn't reading the music very well. I still don't read music very well. But I try. Mm -hmm. But I'm reading the music, and I'm singing the thing, whatever it was. And the teacher comes around, and she says, you, I want to see you after class. So I thought I did something wrong, you know, and... Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. So I see her after class and she says she likes my voice and she wants me to come and audition for a theater company that has an affiliation with the university. I go to the audition for the theater company and it's this woman, my music teacher, and Joseph Walker, oh, the speech oh. teacher who felt my oh, leg my without my permission or mm -hmm. my anything. So... When he sees me, he thinks it's funny, and I don't think I still don't think it's funny. Somehow, I went ahead and joined this theater company, and that's where I started my training in musical theater. So I joined the theater company, and as it turned out, I got all of the starring roles. I had I did no, almost no no choral work. I always had a starring role, uh, but that's not why I did it. I, I really loved the camaraderie. I loved the looks on people's faces when they see shows. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that yeah. look that you see, that gleam in people's eyes and their mouths are open and they're, they're watching what's going on. And, you know, they're being delighted or horrified or moved in some way. So I stayed with it and I was learning. And, you know, we had regular dance classes. We had regular master classes where we had, uh, you know, uh, exceptional teachers coming in. And so mm -hmm. I stuck with it. I stuck with it for a while. And then I decided it was not where I needed to be. So I left. Yeah. And I left school. Mm -hmm. And I was reading. I was always reading backstage or showbiz mm -hmm. newspapers at the casting and I, this time I was looking at the casting and I saw a casting for, um, they wanted an actor who could 
sing, dance, and act with proficiency uh, to play the Jinn of Sin in a play at the New York Theater Ensemble. Okay. And the show was called Soledad Tetrad. And so I went and I auditioned for the Jinn of Sin. <laughs> and I auditioned singing and dancing the lines and moving and doing all this stuff as the Jinn of Sin. And they were blown away. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I was just, <laughs> you know, singing, dancing. That's the best and way. Just making it work. Yeah, I was making it work. So that's what happened. So I got that and I got reviewed. It was my first <laughs> review. So that started things off. And um, somehow I, I got hired to do things and, you know, I did them and I, I had fun and I made friends. So tell us a little bit about Barnum. What was, uh, what, do you remember what you sang at your audition for Barnum? Yes, I remember that audition. I was in a show called Ten Types on the road. I was oh, in Florida. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with Mark Berman and Faith Prince. Oh my gosh. Yep. Whom I love, 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 love Faith Prince. And uh, so I was, uh, my agent, that I just gotten while I was on the Wizbuster Truck Tour, mm -hmm. uh, called me and said, they're looking for someone to replace Ch Terry White in Barnum on Broadway. And I was in Florida. She says, I think you should come up here and audition. So I flew from Florida back to New York for the audition. And I go to the audition. It was at the St. James Theater. This huge cavernous theater. Yeah. So I get to the stage manager. I get on stage and... Uh, I sang my song. My audition song at that time was Don't Rain on My Parade. I sing my song, Cy Coleman, Joe Layton, and Rhoda Dreskin, Dreskin off, or in the in the theater in the dark back there. Right, you can't see them. Can't see them. Barely see them. Mm -hmm. So I sang my song, and Cy Coleman says, yeah, very good, very good. And I see their heads come together, blah, 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 whatever they're saying. They says, oh, so you, do you know any circus stuff? So I said, well, I knew how to juggle because I had done a production of Waiting for Godot with all female cast in clown face and, ma and makeup. Okay, okay. <laughs> like you should, like you do. Yeah, and I played uh, Dee Dee. Okay. The, the optimist. <laughs> so I had learned how to juggle on that show. So I thought I was badass, man. <laughs> <laughs> so... I had done it, but I hadn't done it in a year or so. Okay. So I, they gave me the little bean bags, and I'm juggling, and they fall. Uh -oh. Juggling, 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 and they fall. So I picked them up, and I said, it gets better. <laughs> and they laughed, and they said, you know, Cy Coleman says, Don't, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You got the job. Wow. That never happens. That never happens. Not in the theater like that. It's Not anymore. Just magical. No, no. So I, uh, I went back. I finished ten types. Um, I learned early on not to tell anybody anything until it was signed. Yes. So I didn't say anything, but I told my mother. You know, yes. and my mother was very excited because she loved Cy Coleman's music. Mm. So I came back. And I started rehearsals and stuff for Barnum. And Terry White, I will never forget this. Terry White had gotten injured in the show. And that's why she had to leave the show. But Terry White took me and showed me all the ropes 
backstage. It was my first time on the Broadway stage. Right, right. She showed me all the ropes. She showed me where to where to hang out to be out of the way. Mm-hmm. She made sure all the stage hands. I knew all the stage hands by name and what they did. Yeah. She took me to our hangout, which became became my hangout, Barry Morris. Yeah, it's gone now. Terry White really, really helped me get on the stage and mm-hmm. learn how to get to the cues and be out of the way. And because, you know, even though St. James is a big theater, it was a big show. So yeah. there were people running off and on and things coming up and down and, right. you know, stage hands who had to pull the thing and do the da 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 So, you know, you, they didn't need somebody in the way. Right, right. Especially because the show's been going. She showed me where to go to do my chin-ups. <laughs> because I had on this, you know, just this one piece, uh, um, what do you call it? Unitard. Yes. So I had to be, I was snatched, honey. <laughs> my body was snatched. snatched. Yes. Uh, so in order to look that, you know, because the theater, the, the, the circus, you got to look like strong. Right. Strong. Well, you do this all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, Terry White, I love Terry White. And mm-hmm. um, I've never forgotten how kind and generous she was to me at that time. And, and how much she helped me to do that show. Yeah, yeah. And set you up for success. You know, Absolutely. It's, it's so important that actors remember to help you, and artists, to help each other out, you know, because then yeah. everybody wins. Yeah, no, that's really, yes. I'm so happy you shared that. I'm so, so glad. Wow. Yeah. And what was it like sharing the stage with Jim Dale? He was a lot of fun. It's great when you're on stage with somebody and they are looking you in your eye. Mm-hmm. They're, they're talking to you. They're looking, you, looking at you in the eye. And it, there's a fire. Yeah. Between you. You know, there's that. Yeah. It's great. So he was wonderful. So once you were done with Barnum, where did you audition next? What were you, what did you go into next? My last week in Barnum, I fell and fractured my elbow. Oh, no. So, oh, shit. Um, we had been on closing notice for 10 weeks, at least. Oh. And those who go up on Tuesday, come down by Thursday. So for, oh. so for 10 weeks, we were on closing notice. And, and then finally, like, this, this last week, they said, we're definitely closing. It was a Tuesday. I'll never forget it. It was a Tuesday. I did the same show I'd been doing for a year. I, my, I tripped. My heel got caught on the step going down. It's join the circus like you want to. As we moved from the stage out into the house. And I crashed my elbow. So I missed the last week of Barnum. So, oh, I guess a couple of months after that, Joe Layton was putting a show together called Rock and Roll, The First 5,000 Years. Yeah. Yes. And so they were having auditions, and they called me, and they said, they want to see you. I said, well, my arm is in a sling. Mm-hmm. They said, we want to, they want to see you. Joe Layton wants you to come in. So I went in, and they had every black diva in New York, honey, every white diva <laughs> in New York, every diva, every black, white, whatever, Asian, every, every diva in New York was there for the audition. So I'm going there, you know, I don't know how I look because it's hard to do makeup when you're, Elbow was yeah, right. like this, and, and so um, they, they they had auditioned everybody, and then they said whoever can get to the microphone first can sing the Aretha Franklin part of the audition. So I knew I could sing Aretha, <laughs> but I wasn't running to anywhere. No, yeah. So I let them dolls run to the mic, Mm-mm. and when it was my turn, I got to the mic and I said, "Ooh, you can't say sweeter than honey." But guess what? So is my money. 
All I want to do for me. So I did that, and I saw heads go together in the dark <laughs> back there in the yep. St. James Theater again. And I found out later that they were going to put me in the show. So I had some time, you know, before we went into rehearsals to really get into my physical therapy and get my yeah. arm moving. And so that was the show, Rock and Roll, the first 5,000 years. I guess it was too much for people at that time. There was a lot to see. The costumes were brilliant. The, the multimedia stuff was out of this world. But it was great. Everybody, everybody brought their A-game. So anyway, it closed. I was sad for a little while. And then I started going to auditions again. And I did a show called Black Nativity. Mm -hmm. And I did another show at Hazel Bryant's Theater called, oh, Amen, the Amen Corner. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was in a, I had a very, very, very small part. In that show, uh, the, the woman who was was the singer had gotten ill or something, and they found me and they put me in to do that. So I did that. And at that show, the producers of the Wiz Bus and Truck show company were in the audience at one of those shows. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting next to the producer of the Amen Corner. And they said, she said, who, who's that? Who's that? Who's that one? Oh, that's Lilius White. Well, tell her we want her to we want to see her as the Dorothy understudy for the Wiz Buster Truck Tour. So that's how I got in. Okay. We did fourteen months, fourteen months of split weeks and one night. Oh, oh kids, my god, kids! Because I mean, I was on tour, but I did a I did a big national tour. But kids, a a, a bus and truck split week tour. Tell us what that means, Ms. White. What a what a split week <laughs> Dr. really White. means, Doctor White. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. A split week is you're off Monday, but you're off on the bus traveling. Exactly. Which is worse than performing, really. I mean, the travel days are deadly. The travel days are deadly. And, and if you're traveling on a bus, you're on a bus all day on your day off. It sucks. <laughs> so you're on this bus all day Monday. Tuesday, you get to your first stop of the week. You check into the hotel. If there's time, you take a nap, a shower, what have you. And you go and you do your show at that first venue on Tuesday. Tuesday night, you get back on the bus. You go to another place for Wednesday. Mm -hmm. You get off the bus, shit, shower, shave, go to the theater, you look around, make sure you know, you know where you're going, where backstage is, where the crossovers are, where the bathrooms are, all that. You do a show Wednesday night in a different town. Thursday, you take a shorter bus ride to another town, and you do Thursday, Friday. Get two in a row, yeah. There's one Thursday, one Friday. And then you might go another two or three hours someplace else on the bus on Saturday to do two shows and a show wow. Sunday. And then you sleep at the hotel Sunday. You get back on the bus Monday. There we go again. And you go to the next place. And then when you have the one-nighters, you do a, a show Thursday night in one place. Friday night in another place, Saturday night in another place, and Sunday night someplace else. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you okay. did 14 months of that. 14 months. And I'm going to tell you, what saved me was learning how to take care of myself. Uh -huh. I had a, a bag that I called my kitchen bag. And I had a fifth burner, a teapot, a small frying pan, herbs and spices, 
I had a shake I used to take all the time. And I had my shake cup and, you know, a little plastic you, plate. And, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You were playing Dorothy, too. I mean, you I were was playing Dorothy. the lead. <laughs> I started, but I started out as the understudy. Yes. I started out in the chorus uh, uh, doing the understudy of to Dorothy. And I did the Mice Squad and the Collie Dolls and the Winged Monkeys. I did all of that stuff wow. for the first half of the tour. And then I took over the role. And there yeah. were times when the company went through a town and we all had the flu or some shit. Mm-hmm. And and the girl who was Dorothy called out. I couldn't call out. Mm-hmm. I had the flu too. Yeah. But I couldn't well, you call out. Go on. Yeah. And I remember one time <laughs> there was one of the stagehands. Oh, God bless him. He stood in the wings with my concoction to drink. Yeah. And I had so much peppermint and stuff, different stuff in this concoction. It was a styrofoam cup and it was melting the cup. <laughs> and he kept going to get the different cups. He was taking care of me so I could do the oh, show. Wow. Of, yeah, I never forget. I, I love my stagehands to this day yeah, because yeah. stagehands, people don't know this about the theater, but stagehands that I've worked with, they go the extra mile. That's right. And they look out for you. Extra mile. They go the extra mile. Extra That's mile. Yeah. Love my stagehands. Hello, this is Bessie Davis, not the young one, the old one. I've been on Matches.com looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys at Behind the Curtain? Go to Patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. And do it before you're 122 years old. That's Patreon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Dream Girls? When Dream Girls opened, I just had my daughter. Mm-hmm. Oh, and um, I was uh, I, I was living in the Bronx, and a friend of ours who was um, renting a room from us mm-hmm. said he had just been to see Dream Girls that night before, and he said you got when they do a tour, when they have a, an opening, you've got to be in that show. Oh, he went on and on and on about it. So I was, um, I think a year after that I, is when I was doing Barnum. It was a year. It was a year after yep. that I was doing Barnum. And then we did rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And while we were doing rock and roll, 
Michael Bennett and Michael Peters came to see rock and roll first 5,000 years. Dream Girls was already through the workshops and all that stuff. And I think they were getting ready to do Broadway. Mm -hmm. But they came to see me in rock and roll the first 5,000 years and called my agent to get me to come and audition. So when I called my friend Stanley, I said, I'm going to audition for Dream Girls. He was over the moon. He oh, said, yeah. yeah, you got to do this role. Well, you could do that role. Well, you could do the other role. You know, he was excited. So I prepared to go to audition for Laurel because that's the role I wanted. Mm-hmm. Because she had that dress. I love that dress she had. I wouldn't wear that dress on stage every night. <laughs> it was like a lavender pink yeah. dress with the mm-hmm. tails out of it. And it moved around. It was just lovely. Chiffon is gorgeous. Yes. So I go in. I had just been to Vidal Sasson Salon. Oh. I had purple hair. Uh-huh. It was nice. cut in that Z shape like that. Yes. Oh, that's wow. so fly. It was so gorgeous. And I wore um, a gray and white striped silk culotte jumpsuit. Oh, yes. I was fly as hell, honey. <laughs> so I go in there and I sing. I have my friend Greg Hunter, who was in Rock and Roll the First 5,000 Years with me. Mm-hmm. And Greg Hunter was my musical director at the time. And he helped me put the, the audition together. He said, we're going to sing Aretha Franklin, Ain't No Way. And we're going to segue that into Ain't No Party from Dreamgirls, yes. Laurel's song. So we did that. And, I, you know, I did some risque stuff. Huh? <laughs> Can you elaborate? I was, um, uh, you know, in this song, Ain't No Party, it's been seven years and it don't take a smarty to realize that even though my man throws confetti in my face, still don't make it to party. So when it got to, even though my man throws confetti in my face, I grabbed my crotch and I threw confetti. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was symbolic. I like it. <laughs> so Michael Peters looked at Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett looked at Michael Peters. They looked at each other and they, their heads went together. Oh well, when those heads come together, you got to like You know that. it. <laughs> they, their heads went together and they said, well, we want you to come back and audition for Effie. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't really want to sing Effie because I don't sing like that and I'm not going to gain 200 pounds and I don't want to do this and I don't live that blah, 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 blah. And so now they're really looking at me like, like this chick, this is Effie. Right. This is Effie right here. <laughs> so I, 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 I came back, I came back another time and then the last time I came back, I had the flu and I, I, I looked bad. I had no makeup on. I was really sick. And um, Vinny Liff, God bless him, oh. was the casting director. And I ran to him on the elevator. And I said, Vinny, I'm really sick. I've got the flu. I look like shit. And, you know, I said, I'm just, just give me a few minutes. I was running late. And I said, give me a minute. Let me put some lips on. He said, no, don't do anything. And I said, what? White man speak with forked tongue. You know I'm going to put some lipstick with some eyelashes or something <laughs> So I went in the bathroom and I put some mascara and I put some lipstick and I went back in there and I had these fire engine red leather pants on and a blue sparkly turtleneck top. So I went in there. They had me sing every single note that Effie sings. Every single everything. Oh. What about what I need? Mm-hmm. What about what's right for me? All the little stuff. Everything. By the time we were finished, the end of it was, and I'm telling you I'm not going, and my throat was raw meat. So I finished the song and I said to Michael, Peter, Michael Bennett, I said, look, 
I'm, I'm really, I know it don't sound so good today. I said, I really am sick. I have the flu. He said, yeah, we know you're sick. Either that or you're a drug addict. Oh, anyway. Takes so one to said, no one. Yeah, thanks. So anyway, so he says, so uh, you're going uh, to go to L.A. You'll stand by for Jen. You know you'll go on. And I said, wait a minute. I, I don't want to go to L.A. I don't have any family in L.A. I don't drive a car. And I just got a brand new, I had a brand new beautiful duplex apartment in Brooklyn, honey. I had just painted mm-hmm. it. I had a baby. I was going to say, not to mention your kid. Like, I mean, I, my I had a, yeah. And yeah. my whole family was there in Brooklyn. So I said, I don't want to go. I said, why don't you send Sheila Ellis? Because she wants to go to California. I did do that. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> so they're looking at me like incredibly. Yeah. Incredulously. They're looking at me like, who is this one here? Nobody does uh, this. So who does this? So they said, look, don't worry about it. Come, come to L.A. You, everything you need, you'll have. So I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, you know, white man speak with forked tongue. So I go to my mother. I said, Mom, they want me to go mm-hmm. to California to do this, and I don't know. I will drive. What am I going to do about the baby? Mm-hmm. So she said, they said they'd help you. They, they'd give you what you needed. Go on. So I went, and they didn't lie to me. They, they made sure that I had everything I needed. They got me uh, housing. They got me a babysitter. The six weeks of rehearsal in New York, I was the Effie. But oh. when we got to L.A., it was time for me to be in the dressing room because Jennifer Holliday was there. Weird. So it was odd. Yeah. Because the, the cast was used to me as the Effie. And, totally. And rehearsing with you and establishing yeah. that connection, all of that stuff. It's like a different dynamic. It was different. It was different. So anyway, that's, that's that. So I... Stood by for Jennifer for, what, 10, 11 months. And I got to go on pretty frequently. Right. And then um, we, um, the, sh- we, the show was closing in L.A. Mm-hmm. And we, they offered me the role. Of course. So we went to San Francisco and we broke the box, record, box office records in the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. Um, and I went on to do FE in San Francisco for four months. And then we went to Chicago. When did you feel like you connected more to the role? You know, because obviously once you start rehearsing something and really diving in and doing your paragraph work and all of that, I mean, you're going to connect more. But was there a moment that you were like, oh, wait, oh, wait. Yeah, Effie, that is mine. That's like, that's, that's, she's mine now. Well, you know, I felt very close to Effie because when I was in the Demigods, mm-hmm. I told you I had a very... Sweet boyfriend. <laughs> yes. So there were times when I missed rehearsals. I was I was missing in action, honey. Uh-huh. Because I was with my boyfriend. <laughs> and so at one point, they put me out of the group. Oh. Yeah. They said, if you can't make it here and you can't call us to say that you're okay or that you're not coming, then you, you have to go. So I said, oh. Mm. So that's how I related to Effie. Effie is one of the greatest characters in musical theater, and lots of people will take, uh, you know, and, and embody her. What are some things that you would love to pass on to future generations about how to play Effie or traps to avoid or, or what makes her so special, what makes her tick? Well, the thing about Effie is that you can't halfway do her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you have to be fully committed to Effie. You have to be fully committed on the stage and off the stage. She takes an enormous amount of energy and emotional power 
because you can't just sing, and I am telling you, I am not going. The whole, the, what, the whole way that that show is con- constructed, it's an emotional punch in the stomach by the end of Act One. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot tiptoe through that. You have to be in that character. And you have to be so in love with Curtis that you're willing to forsake your best friend, who is Dina. And you're, 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 you're full of venom and because you think that Dina's taken him away from you. And, mm-hmm. and now you're pregnant. You're on the, you know, you're, you're, not, a, you're not with your family. You're, you're, and now he's throwing you away. There's a lot of emotional investment in Effie. And so I would tell anybody who wants to tackle that role, that role to take your vitamins, drink your shakes, do your exercises, really take care of yourself. Do your vocalese more than ever. Mm-hmm. Whatever vocal stuff you have uh, been given to learn to keep your voice in good shape, do it daily. Mm-hmm. And take good care of yourself because it takes a lot of energy to do Effie. The singing and the dancing is one thing, but the emotional effort that it takes to reach, to really touch your audiences in Effie is the emotional energy that comes from the acting. Mm-hmm. And the combination of all of that is, is very powerful and it's very strenuous. Were you put into the show by Michael Bennett? Yes. So I was put into the show by Michael Bennett, Michael Peters, Bobby Avion, Theoni Aldridge made my costumes. Oh my gosh, legend. I was given the royal treatment. I'll never forget it. What what are some things that you learned about working with Michael Bennett? Or 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 some stories that you can share about that? I I heard I heard horror stories about Michael Bennett. Mm -hmm. I was raised a certain way. And you know, by the time I got to do Dream Girls, uh, my daughter was two years old. I had I had to leave her father because he was crazy. I'm sorry. And um, I was kind of hard-hearted, and I just was not taking any shit from anybody because I felt like I had been to the bottom, and I was able to do Barnum and rock and roll and these other shows and build myself back up. And I had a beautiful new apartment. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't gonna take any shit from anybody. I wanted to work, but I wasn't willing to sacrifice my dignity, you know, for it. And I wanted to be able to to have choice, you know. So I'd heard the horror stories about Michael. I'm not going to repeat them because everybody has their own story about him and their own opinions about him. We've heard, yeah. But um, I think that because I was very upfront with him, because I was very no-nonsense with him and the whole company as far as the producers and stuff, you know, I told them, I have a two-year-old. I have an almost, she was almost two years old. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm not going to leave her home every day, all day. So she's going to be at rehearsal sometime. And I'll never forget this. I had a beautiful white mink coat. And I'd bring my daughter to this rehearsal. And I'd spread the mink coat out on the floor and have her sit on the mink coat with her toys and her books and her stuff. And I taught her, you sit here, because mommy's working right now. You sit here, you play with your toys, you can watch, but you sit right here. I don't want you running around, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, mommy. Mm-hmm. So she would sit there and she'd play, and then she'd watch. And when we had the 10-minute break, she'd get up and do, dream girls, dream <laughs> girls, ooh, me 
make you happy. <laughs> well, honey, when Michael Bennett caught her eye, when he, when he caught a hold of that, he said, oh, my God, she's a little Dina. <laughs> he fell completely in love with her. And she was that kind of baby that you could pick her up and she took you like this. Yes. And she said, you want to be my cousin? You want to be my friend? Oh, and she was very open and very a little precocious. But she was that kind of baby that she would grab, grab your hand and say, come on. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you yeah. couldn't help but just fall in love with her. So he was totally, he fell in love with her. And he said, oh, I could bring her anytime. And I didn't, you know, I didn't overdo it because I needed to be focused as well. But, you know, I let them know I'm not leaving my baby home every day, all day for Mm -hmm. six, eight, ten hours a day. I'm not doing that. So anyway, that worked out. And uh, by the time we got to Chicago, you know, the show had made so many improvements on the show. And, you know, he was very happy with my work. And I remember us sitting in the dressing room in Chicago. Michael Ben sat on my lap and we drank. A five dollar bottle of champagne. It probably wasn't champagne. It wasn't champagne, but whatever it right. was, we sat in my dressing room, and he sat on my lap, and I, I was, and I held him, and yeah. we drank champagne, and we talked, and we laughed, and so I don't know, you know, if anybody else has had the experience, but I think that because I was real with him, mm. and really down to earth with him, and not trying to, you know, bullshit him about anything, he said he finally had an actress in this part. Yeah. Uh... Because it was, I was living, I had lived it. How did you get involved with Once on This Island? I, I know that I took over the role from somebody, from Keisha Lewis Evans. Keisha, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember what I was doing before that, but I know during that time I was doing Sesame Street. Yes, All yes. Right. yes. I came in and um, I loved doing that show. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful because show. Because I got to share the stage with Milton Craig Neely. Mm-hmm. Who I just love so much, and Eric Riley, mm-hmm. whom I love so much, and Jerry McIntyre, who is Mac. the mayor of Broadway. Yeah, yes. the mayor, the king of Broadway. Are you kidding me? Oh, oh I just and Lachance, mm-hmm. and I've worked with Lachance before on Dreamgirls. I think was mm-hmm. before that. Yeah, we had worked on Dreamgirls. Anyway, I loved it. I was barefoot. I didn't really have to wear a bunch of makeup. It's just enough for you to see my eyes and my lips. And mm-hmm. I had my hair braided. And I was able to move my ass around, yeah. shake my <laughs> ass and my hips. And, you know, and be be Mother Earth on yeah. stage. And I just loved it. I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. And I would have stayed there if I had known that I was going to hell in cats. Yeah, I, I love when you talk about cats whenever I've seen interviews or when I've read and someone brings it up. I don't want to ruin it right now, but like if you were to say in one sentence, what was your impression of doing cats, Lilius? Ugh. <laughs> Everybody knows the story about the cats. I, you know, I, I don't like when actors are not treated well. Hmm. I don't like it when actors, when producers don't care about the actors. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I found happening in cats. Those kids were coming in there and they were grabbing hands full of Advil and, and eating Advil and, and going on injured. The theater was so dirty. Mm-hmm. It had been going were, for like 10 years at this point. It had been running right, so Yeah, by the time so. I got there, it was 10 years. Yeah. And there was 10 years worth of mold. Yep. And mildew and a dust, uh, mouse droppings. It was awful. Oh, my God. It yeah. was terrible. 
So anyway, that's that. So you moved past that. So we, past so that. you did that for like, what, like six months? Then you just like left right six away. Six months. Bye. Good. Get out. Bye. And then you get that, go back to the, and you, you were doing Sesame that. Street for a while. You had like, yes. it was regular for, you know, a good while. Um, yeah. And then, but then you get, you, you, you originate a role in a revival, a pretty big revival. This is how to succeed in business without really trying. And they're taking this song, Brotherhood, and they're like, going to add a little something to it. Um, and you kind yes. of steal the show. <laughs> because of Janine Tesori and Ted Sperling and I, I contributed my little two cents to it. Good. Yes, you did. Well, we, um, we put it together so that it was a really huge number. Um, uh, Wayne Cilento, yeah. Cilento mm-hmm. uh, worked out this wonderful choreography and, you know, he gave me a little bit of freedom to do what I felt to do. And um, it was fun. It seemed like a lot of fun to do. It was fun. It was fun. Because, you know, that number stopped the show every day, every night, every, every, every time. time. I came out of the stage door one night, and there was a woman stand, standing outside the stage door. She was crying. Oh. And I, I went to her and I said, what's wrong? Are you Okay. Because, you know, you're in Times Square, any damn thing could happen. Yeah. And she said, no, it's just, it's, it's you, it's you. And so I'm thinking, okay, what the hell did I do? <laughs> and she said, I, I said, well, did you like the show? Did you like the number? Oh, I loved it. I just loved it. I said, well, why are you crying? She said, I don't know. And to me, that's a grand compliment. Yes. That's why we do it. You can't that's even because, get the that, compliment that, you know, that means that something, I touched something in her mm. that made her so full that it brought her to tears. Mm-hmm. And she was still full. Recovering. Yeah. When I came out that stage door mm. and she saw me and she just said, just thank you. Thank you so much. And I just, you know, it's just, the joy. Just about it, it makes me, it, you know, brings tears to my eyes because yeah. that's why we do it. We don't do it to say, Look at me. I mean, you know, some of us do it for that. Some of us do it only for that. But I'd like to know that I have touched you in some way. Yeah. That something I've sung, some lyric, some note, some something in between, in between the breath, yeah. something that you've gotten from me that makes you feel, feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't go out to make people feel, feel sad. But I want you to feel something. Yeah. yeah. Feel something. And I, I think we all felt something when we all got to see you in the life. Uh, can you tell us how uh, that entered your world? In Cy Coleman again. Well, and Cy Coleman Cy again, Coleman. Mr. Coleman. Yeah, we love it. Yeah. yeah. Love him. Cy Coleman and Joe Layton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because it was the two of them initially. At first. That's right. Working on this. Um even back in 19, 1990, like before you came to Broadway, you had that workshop or off-Broadway thing, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah, we did a workshop at Westbeth. West, that's right, Westbeth, yeah. At Westbeth. And um, they called me, Cy called, called me, called me directly. And he says, well, got a show here. Joe and I work on the show. And uh, got a part to you. I want you to do this part. So I said, okay. Anything, you know, I was, yeah, okay, yeah, let's go. So... They said, we want you to come down here and uh, learn this song, and we want you to meet a couple of people. So they, they had me come down and learn the oldest profession, and I thought it was a complete hoot. And, you know, I could see Cy looking at Joe, and Joe looking at Cy saying, yeah. 
She's the one. This is it. She's the one who can sell this song. And so then I remember meeting Pam, Pamela Isaacs, mm-hmm. and we became very, very fast sisters. Mm-hmm. I'd known Chuck Cooper mm-hmm. for a long time, but we hadn't worked together. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't known Pam before. So we would rehearse at Size House. And wow. uh, it was just, I don't know, it was a dream come true. Um, he's the last of the old, like, you know, he was working in the 90s, but he's the last of the, like, the old guard, you know, the old the great American songbook still living, you know what I mean? So that's so, I don't know, it kind of blows my mind that you got to originate one of his last shows, um, because that yeah. is a legacy there. I mean, that's really, truly special. Yeah, and, you know, I feel really blessed to uh, have been chosen and for me to choose it. The music was just so wonderful. You know, when I when I listen to... When people ask me to be in their shows nowadays, I listen to the soundtrack. I listen to what they send me. And mm-hmm. I ask myself if I would be okay listening to this eight times a week. And a lot of times that determines whether or not I want to deal with it. So, yeah. Never got tired of the life? No, never did. Mm-hmm. What was the rehearsal process like? And, and, and when did it go from Joe Layden to Michael Blakemore? And, and did that change how you approach the character or how the character was portrayed? Well, Joe Layden passed away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the midst of them, you know, getting the money together. For a long time, we did a lot of backers auditions. And so, you know, because, because of the subject matter, there were some people who didn't want to invest in it. They didn't want to be bothered with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did quite a few backers auditions. Um, and then one day Cy called Pam and me and, um, Cy says, I've got this new song for the finales for you two. And it was the duet, my friend. Mm -hmm. Well, we could barely get through it. We were bawling and we were just so moved and so pleased that he had written this wonderful ending to the show. And it made me feel even more confident about doing the show because it said to me that this story was not just about hookers. It was not just about these women who, you know, have to do whatever they have to do to survive on the street, but it was about two friends, you know, who were associates and who were helping each other. And um, I'd like to think that even if the show were about two friends who were nurses or two friends who were secretaries, that the the root of it is the same. It's yes. humanity. Yes. You know, they're human beings and they're trying to survive a difficult yes. situation. So um, I, I loved that part of it. I love the fact that when we opened, we'd have the matinees and we have the what we call the blue rinse crowd. Yes. <laughs> yes. At the matinees, the little old ladies, you know, they're sitting in the second and the third row and you see their glasses and they're looking up, and, you know. And... Those people loved the life. They would be crying at the end. They would be outside wanting autographs and wanting to talk to us at the end because they realized that it it was not about hookers and pimps. This was about camaraderie, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, helping each other out and and being human beings to one another. So Mm -hmm. I I love that. Do you think that show will ever uh, come back? I certainly think that it could. It should. Yeah. You know, it's a great show. 
It's a great show. The music is some of the best music I think Cy Coleman has ever written. Tell us totally about you, your relationship with Cy Coleman because he comes up so often in your life and you're such a huge advocate of his work. And I think I read an interview with you where you said, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Stephen Sondheim, and the third name is Cy Coleman, but it doesn't seem to get the focus that it's supposed to. Why do you think that is and how can we go about fixing that? Well, I think that more people need to sing his stuff. I mean, he wrote a lot of stuff with, with different people mm -hmm. and... Um, but his stuff is not easy to sing necessarily. Yeah. When you listen to a song like The Best Is Yet to Come. Yeah. It's it's they're very the the intervals of the music are very distinct. Yeah. It's chromatic, and it's jazzy, it's it's jazzy and, and those intervals, you know, you gotta listen. Your your ear has to really be in tune with that. He wrote this really groovy, cool stuff yeah. that was not very easy to sing all the time. But, mm -hmm. you know, you put some effort into it and, you know, you, you get the joy of it. Speaking of joy, um, <laughs> we have to talk about this amazing, amazing album uh, that you have created. What was the impetus to create Get Yourself Some Happy? Well, okay, Dr. Joshua Sherman is a very dear friend of mine, has been for many years, and he and I have been talking about doing an album for the last 20 years. Timothy Graffenreid was my musical director for 20, 25, 30 years. Wow. And he was a dance arranger on The Wiz, and he did, like, he, Coming Uptown, and he did a lot of amazing arranging, just to give a little context for our listeners, that they might yes. be like, oh, the Emerald Ballet from The Wiz, like, he arranged yes. that. I mean, that, all yeah. the dance music from The Wiz, he wrote mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Sorry, continue, please. Yes, and he works with a lot of different artists. So when Joshua moved to Vermont, he built a recording studio. It's called Old Mill Road Recording Studio in East Arlington, Vermont. Joshua, when he finished the studio, he says, okay, we've got to do this thing that we've been talking about doing for 20 years. Right. So he said, he had, he had the three of us make a list. So the three of us made a list of songs that we wanted to record. Timothy had his list. I had my list. Josh had his list. And we put the list together and we recorded a bunch of songs. And so that's how this came along. And it was just Timothy and I in the studio. So the initial tracks were just piano and voice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Timothy died the 1st of January, 2020. So sad. So young, too. It was like 68 or something. I mean, just two. Yeah. Yeah, we were the same age. Mm. So we used to, we used to teach, each, teach each other about that because um, he always said I was older than him because I'm born in July. <laughs> and he's born in, uh, in August. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Timothy passed away, uh, and the the uh, Ben Arundel, who was a Grammy Award winning um, uh, uh, engineer, was ta given the task of putting the album together with just the piano. So he's he, they added the, the the other instrumentation that you hear was gotcha. added, and they've been working on it for two years. And they said, okay, it's time. Let's you know. Great. Let's put it out there. So that's how that came to be. Josh and I are friends for a long time. He's also a medical doctor, a wonderful doctor. Mm. And um, he's got this beautiful studio. And it was a joy to be up there in Vermont for that. Uh, I, was, I think it was a couple of weeks we were up there recording. Yeah. Oh, it was just lovely. And so it was a, a labor of love, truly a labor of love, something that we've been wanting to do for a long time. 
enjoy because the songs focus on happiness and positivity and yes. you know and they do they spark so much and listeners they are different arrange i mean they're not just like put on a happy face but it's a, it's jazzy it's funky there's a, like lots of soul i mean the, the arrangements really do are across the spectrum really and, and all different yes. of this of styles and i think that's really like the twist i mean yeah it's just really, really ah, cool, i know really cool <laughs> what do you hope that the listener comes away with after listening to the album I want people to feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been through a hell of a time these last 15, 16 months. Gosh. And, you know, this album was done way before we even knew there was a COVID coming. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, it was way before COVID anything. There's, there's so much, you know, I got to a point where I was reading, I was looking at the news on TV, and I was crying. So I had to limit mm-hmm. myself the time watching TV and be on social media because it was making me very, very sad. So when we went into the studio and and this was, the news was making me sad before the pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, I want people to find some one or two or three or five of these songs that just makes them smile. You know, even if, even if you're smiling, saying. That sounds really weird or wacky or, <laughs> or, you know, why are they singing these old songs? You know, whatever it is. I want you to smile. I want, I want to see people with their earbuds in or their headphones on bopping to this music. And I want somebody to ask them, what are you listening to that makes you right. smile like that? Yes. And, you know, I want you to get a lift. I want you to get lifted. Mm-hmm. And, and think about happier times or, uh, you know, do the twist. Yes. You know? I mean, you yes. might have to go to the chiropractor the next day. But <laughs> you might. You might. The, but it's worth but it. Do the twist. It's worth it. It's oh, worth it. And folks, like we've said before, you know, Kevin and I were lucky enough to to get a sneak listen to the album, and it is just fantastic, and it does put a smile on your face. And if you click in um, to our info description for today's episode, um, you can go right to the link to purchase the album, uh, and it will put a smile on your face. I, I think you'll be playing it quite often for the next few months. Lily, I, I, I wanted to ask you, what do you know now that maybe you wished you had known and you could go back in time and, and, and tell the young lady that's about to join the bus and truck of the whiz or, uh, you know, who's going to go join the demigods. What advice would you have? I would say get yourself a kitchen bag. Great. <laughs> Don't take any guff from anyone. Be, full, be straightforward. Be as nice as you can be. But, you know, when you got to call somebody a son of a bitch, call them a son of a bitch. And that's what my mother would say. And if you find out later on that you're wrong, then say, I'm sorry, son of a bitch. I was wrong. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, but I would say, you know, take care of yourself and save your money. Save mm-hmm. your money. Try not to fall in love with anybody in your company or in the band. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or the band. Or the band. <laughs> I'm telling you. So take care of yourself because, you know, yeah. there's coronavirus going around. There's all kinds of other kinds of diseases going around that you don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And you're there for a reason. You're there to make music, to make musical theater and to pretty much serve the public. That's right. Yeah. So while you're serving the public, serve yourself. Mm-hmm. Take care of yourself. And if you don't know how to take care of yourself, get a kitchen bag, get your fifth burner, get your teapot, get your pan. You know, if you want to be a vegan, figure it out. Figure it out how to be a vegan on the road. You know, whatever you want to do, figure it out how to live, how to take care of yourself. 
because this way, you know, you can do this for a long time. If you're in school, learn your craft, learn how to act, learn how to sing, learn how to warm up, learn how to use your voice so that it can last you. And be careful what you do to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you smoke cigarettes, cut that shit out. Now, cut it out, you know? And if you have a propensity toward alcohol and other stuff, keep an eye on yourself with that. Mm-hmm. Watch out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not telling you not to do stuff, right. but be careful. Be careful. That's take awesome. care of you. And I think a great way for everyone to take care of themselves is uh, in that kitchen bag, throw in a copy of Get Yourself Some Happy, yes. Lilius's, uh in- incredible recording. Uh, Lilius, it has been uh, a-, a lifelong dream for us on this yeah. podcast to yeah. actually be able to talk to you. And, and smile and laugh so much and learn and so much. You. And thank, thank you, you for all the gifts that you have shared with us over these years, we know that anytime your name is announced uh, for a project, we know that it's going to be of the utmost quality and that we are going to have a joyous experience getting to yeah. watch you. Kevin, you got to pick which track from Lilius's great album, Get Yourself Some Happy, that we're going to end with today. What song are that we going to hear? exactly right. Before I tell you that, I just want to say, if you want to see Ms. White in person and you can oh, see yes. her live in the next month or so, you can be in San Francisco and go to Fine Science there uh, on July 23rd or July 24th. If you're in New York yes. City, you can see her in the green room where she opened up the space originally many, many couple of years ago. And this yes. August 12th through the 14th, that's in New York City. And then if you happen to be vacationing in Provincetown, yes. uh, Massachusetts, you're going to have a grand old party there and come see Lilius August 27th and tw- or 28th in uh, Provincetown. But the track that we're going to hear right now, I, I thought I, it's not where you start, it's where you finish because it's, it's um. true and it's such a great song. I love it. So you're going to hear that it right is. now, folks. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Lilius, for being with us. This has been my pleasure. Thank you. If you start at the top, you're certain to drop. You got to watch your timing. Better begin by climbing. Up, up, up the ladder. If you're gonna last, you can't make it fast, man. Nobody starts a winner. Give me a slow beginner. Easy does it, my friend. Conserve your fine endurance. Easy does it, my friend, for that's your life insurance. While you are young, take it wrong after wrong after wrong. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. It's not how you go, it's how you land. Shot. They call him a klutz. Can I run the favorite? All he needs is the guts. Your final return will not diminish. And you can be the cream of the crop. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. And you're gonna finish on top. Easy does it, my friend. Where you finish. Hey, 
it's where you finish. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 